Hi, welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Welcome back to Medicus. My name's Nate, and today we're going to talk about an immigration policy in the United States called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, often abbreviated as DACA. You might be thinking, wait, I thought this was a medical podcast. What does immigration policy have to do with medicine? And that's a good question, but to answer it, let's first explain what DACA actually is. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals was established in 2012 by the executive branch of the government and it allows undocumented immigrants who were brought to the United States before the age of 16 to receive protection from deportation. The recipients must be less than 31 years old, and they must be high school graduates or current students. If their request for deferred action is approved, they receive a work permit and then are eligible to get legal jobs with benefits, a driver's license, and most importantly, for our discussion, they get better access to higher education, including medical school, which has been previously not accessible to undocumented immigrants. And that's where our conversation begins. Starting in 2014, Loyola University in Chicago started accepting DACA students into the Stritch School of Medicine. Loyola was the first medical school to do so, but several other schools around the country have followed suit since then. In case you didn't realize, all of us at the Medicus team are actually studying at Loyola currently, and having the DACA medical students here has been one of the big parts of our school culture. We wanted to share this unique perspective by inviting two of our classmates who are DACA recipients to come onto the podcast and share their experiences. Ima graduated in 2018 and is a psychiatry intern, and Cesar is an MD-PhD student currently in his research years. They're both advocates for undocumented immigrants, and we're very excited to have them on the show. With that, let's cut to the interview. Cesar, can you tell me a little more about yourself? Sure. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Loyola Street School of Medicine. I'm 29 years old, and I was born in Mexico, but came to the U.S. when I was 10. Sure. What state in Mexico? It was, I was born in Ciudad Juarez, that's the city, oh, okay. and then yeah. Chihuahua, Mexico, which is a state in the north. Okay, yeah. That's El Paso is the U.S. equivalent, right? Mm-hmm. I have a friend from there. What about you? So I'm also 29 years old. Um, I'm a first-year psychiatry resident here at Loyola, and I am originally from Pakistan, um, came here when I was about three years old to the U.S. Did you guys move to Chicago originally when you came to the United States, or were you in other cities? Or No, I, I came directly to, to Chicago. Directly to Chicago? Yeah. And for you as well, or...? I initially moved to California for a couple of months, but then my family relocated for good to southern New Mexico, and I lived there from age 10 to 25, and that's when I moved to medical school. Okay, yeah. Are your parents in Chicago as well? Yes. For you guys? Yeah. Mine aren't. Mine are back in New Mexico. Back in New Mexico. Okay. That's cool. What did you guys do before coming to medical school, like, to prepare? In my case, I graduated undergrad in 2011, a year before DACA, and I honestly hadn't planned that far ahead what to do with my life. So I spent that first year and a half doing cash cash jobs, so cleaning yards or just doing odd jobs. And then once DACA was enacted, I wanted to go to medical school, but at that point, none of the medical schools had announced that they would consider DACA recipients. So I went ahead and I did a uh, master's for about two years. And after that, that's when I joined the MD-PhD program at Loyola. Hmm. 
cool. Emma? So I graduated at the end of 2011 from Rutgers. So we were in New Jersey at the time, me and my family, and then we relocated back here, which was kind of our home because I was raised here. And then we went there for like quite a few years in the tri-state area. And so came back here and I just started volunteering, studying for the MCAT actually, because I didn't do that during my undergrad. So that was pretty much it. Like I, I worked a little bit. And that was after actually getting DACA, but I was just trying to prepare for the med school applications. Sure. Yeah. So you started in 2012 or 2013, what would that would be? For med school? Yeah. 2014. 2014. Mm-hmm. And then you started in? 2015. 2015. Okay. It's interesting to hear like, you know, your backgrounds, how you came here. This is kind of a cliche question, but what was your motivation for coming to medical school? So my motivation was really because I was fascinated with psychiatry during college. I was actually pre-business initially, and then I just didn't really know what to do. Um, I was kind of stuck because I didn't think that I would fare well in the sciences, but then I figured, okay, let me try like finance. And then I took all those courses, you know, micro macroeconomics, accounting, and I just felt like to me personally, the subject matter was really dry and I couldn't, I just didn't have an interest in it. I geared a little bit more towards psychology, and I really fell in love with that. And then I thought about psychiatry as a field to pursue in the future. And so with that, I kind of made a mindset to enter medical school, but still keeping an open mind, you know, thinking that, well, maybe there's something else that I would be interested in once I enter medical school, but it seems like, you know, my heart was set on that. So that was really my biggest motivation. Makes sense. Yeah. In my case, it started back when I was about six Back in Mexico, my dad became ill and we didn't have any access to care. So his disease was not diagnosed. And so we spent many years suffering as a family because of that. Later on, it turned out that it was diabetes, which could have been easily prevented and even treated. And that really stayed with me. The idea that in not having access to care, you can go many years suffering for something that can be easily prevented or treated. So for most of my childhood, I didn't really think about I wanted to practice medicine or be a physician. I just thought about I want to be the kind of person that will keep my dad from getting sick or other people like that. And once I started college, I realized that that's called medicine or it's called being a doctor. And at that point, I started to pursue the career. Sure. Yeah. It sounds like you guys have very classic stories of being interested in medicine. And how has... DACA made it possible for you guys to pursue medical school? So initially, it seemed like it would be impossible to enter medical school without having DACA. And really, at that time, I didn't even know that such a thing as DACA would even exist around the time that I was applying. So I kind of went into it thinking, well, you know, there's a very slim chance that I would even get accepted in the first place. But somehow the timing just kind of worked out And it was announced around the time, actually shortly after I took the MCAT. And then from there, once I finally got my um, work permit the following year, that's how, you know, it kind of just helped a lot in terms of the med school application, um, being able to talk about that and being able to say that you have the work authorization. And that allows you to go to school or, you know, get a job. So that's, you know, without it, I think it would have been almost impossible. Sure. So like without that work authorization, uh, they wouldn't, you probably wouldn't have been accepted. Is that, you think that's probably true? I think so. Uh, yeah. I think there's a very, very slim chance uh, yeah. because most of the schools around the nation here, they require a permanent residency or citizenship for admission into their med schools. Yeah. So. And I guess 
maybe we should talk a little bit about like who is eligible for DACA. What kinds of people are applying for DACA? So the profile is essentially young immigrants. I believe that on when DACA was introduced in 2012, you had to be under 31 and then you had to have been um, under 16 when you arrived in the country, in addition to meeting certain criteria like having a good moral character or being in school or having graduated high school. So it is targeting, you know, upstanding people that are still young and capable uh, to give back to the country. It seems like it would be a huge resource for, you know, young people who didn't have that status because it, it allows you to do higher education, including undergrad and graduate school. And without that, you would be in a position where you might be able to like fake your way into undergrad, but it would be like really difficult to get a job afterwards. Yeah. Even like with financing your education, you know, during that time, if you didn't have DACA, it would be very, very difficult. So, yeah. yeah, that is true. How, how do people... Um, finance their education with DACA because isn't isn't there like usually you can't apply for federal loans from what I understand how do you finance it without or with DACA even well in my circumstance so our year we went through the Illinois Finance Authority so we took out a loan you know every single year with that so that we were able to finance our education every single year with you know through Loyola and unfortunately not every medical school that accepts DACA has these sort of resources. So sometimes they have to struggle um, in order to finance their education. But Loyola sort of, you know, paved that for us. And they said that, well, not only is there a chance for DACA students um, to be on an equal footing and be accepted here, but they are also, you know, establishing some sort of way for us to finance our education as well. So we were able to to use the Illinois Finance Authority and fund it that way. Yeah. That's very that's very great. I mean, I remember, so I just had a friend who was from Guatemala. I remember specifically he wanted to go to medical school. We were undergrad together. And I mean, he, he did have his education visa, but he specifically talked about how, you know, he couldn't apply to medical school in the United States without some sort of financing. Because, I mean, you know, most people can't afford the tuition without financing. And he can apply for loans through most institutions. He had to, like, put collateral up somewhere. So it's, like, really great that that program was available to you guys. Well, thought we've talked a little bit about DACA and the, the benefits of it, but what are, like, the limitations of DACA? It doesn't create a path to citizenship at this point. What other kind of limitations does DACA have besides, like, you know, path to citizenship? Um, So you mentioned before that DACA is not legislation passed by Congress. It's an executive um, order. What that means is that it can be rescinded by the executive branch at any given point, which the current administration attempted to do. Outside of that, DACA does not provide any kind of legal status. Rather, it's a deferral from deportation, which makes a huge difference. Even taking all of that into account, the protections afforded by DACA have to be renewed every two years. So you're essentially living your life two years at a time. Yeah. Well, so it's not legislation by Congress yet. If there were legislation, what kinds of details do you think would be a good thing to have in the legislation that would replace DACA or even make it better? I mean, I would also include the other age groups because I know there's a certain age group that this is targeted for. So unfortunately, you know, with this, a lot of younger populations have benefited from it, but the parents are still struggling. 
So, I mean, I think that that would be great if, if they could broaden, you know, the age group to, to everyone who's kind of suffering with this ordeal. Yeah, sure. it's um, it's somewhat scary for me to think that when DACA started, the cutoff was 31. And now DACA has been in place for multiple years. And I myself am 29. And it just brings the idea that when all these talks about legislation started about two decades ago, many of those people were still very young, and but they were aged out of uh, benefiting from it. So I agree with Aima that there needs to be a talk about what kind of age range should benefit from this. Sure. Um, outside of that, of course, it would be great if there was a way to have a way to permanently adjust people's status, such as having a path to citizenship. Yeah, that sounds like that would be like a, a positive improvement to it. I know there have been several, you know, attempts at legislation over the past few years. Would you feel comfortable, like, you know, summarizing what kinds of legislation they've tried to pass? So the trend is that... The first, the DREAM Act, which is the most well-known bill that would adjust the status of young people, the first one was introduced in 2001, and since then, it's only become more and more restrictive. So back then, it had a relatively wide age range for those that could benefit, and it also gave a pathway to citizenship. And now current proposals have even gone to the extent of getting rid of the pathway to citizenship and essentially given a DACA-like status where you're in this second class of of person in the U.S. So it's very worrisome for me that as we go forward, it seems that more and more gets taken away from the kind of aid that we could get. And even then, there is no bills that are actually being seriously considered. Yeah, I'm sure that's, that's probably frustrating. I do know that one of the recent proposals was spearheaded by Senator Durbin. Is that true? Oh, no, yes. So Senator Durbin, who's here from Illinois, he's been one of the champions of the DREAM Act and Young Undocumented since the beginning. And he's been on the side of proposing bills that are very fair and that would benefit us greatly. But again, there's been increasing opposition to that in recent years, which is a huge shame. I do recall you guys had the opportunity to meet with Senator Durbin, I believe, a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. Could you tell a little bit about that experience? I think you did like uh, face-to-face in his office. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first time I met Senator Durbin was the first day of medical school for me. And that was also when they held a press conference. And this was in 2014, August at the time. So I, I briefly met him. You know, he was here at Loyola for the press conference and that's when Johanna Mejias had, you know, also uh, she spoke out in regards to DACA and trying to just maintain DACA. And then after that, I was, I, you know, I had the pleasure of meeting him quite a few times after one of the more noticeable, you know, the more notable and important times were in February of 2017 when he invited me to D.C. for the joint session of Congress that Trump had addressed. And so during that time, uh, you know, I was able to go along Capitol Hill and then go for that joint session meeting. And so that was a very amazing, surreal experience. Um, Also very stressful a little bit too. There's so many (laughs) important people in the room. And so that was, yeah, that was very surreal. And then also I got to meet him last at the press conference that he had. This was actually right after President Trump had, you know, rescinded DACA. And so this was like a few weeks after that. And so then, again, there was a press conference at Loyola, and Senator Durbin was there 
you know, I also spoke out, Cesara also spoke out at that time. And then the last time that I saw Senator Durbin was actually on match day. And so oh, he came to match. He came to match to see the DACA students. So he actually wasn't present for the entire reception, but he was there in the morning just to say hello and talk to the DACA students at that time. So that was the last time I saw him. Oh, great. Thanks for, you know, sharing that. Yeah. It seems like that would probably be exciting. When you went to Washington, did you like speak at all or do you just kind of observe? We had this Facebook Live uh, mm. video for just a few minutes and that was with me and Senator Durbin. So that was like posted on his channel actually after on his Facebook page. That was the the only interview I did actually at that time. Um, okay. Other than that, I just got to attend the joint session. So yeah, yeah, that's very fun. Yeah. I mean, we touched a little bit on like the history of Loyola accepting DACA students. Could one of you maybe give a history of that here and how we started accepting DACA students and where we've gone since then? I sort of accidentally stumbled upon Loyola's, you know, web page that had talked about how they were really the first in the nation to have a policy on their page in regards to students like me, you know, DACA students. And so this was around the time that I was applying. This was my second cycle because the first time that I applied for medical school, I didn't have DACA status at that time. And then the second time around, you know, I did a little bit more digging. And then I realized, wow, look, there's a there's a medical school that's literally half an hour to 45 minute drive from where I currently am. And they're actually accepting students like me. And there was no other medical school in the nation that had sort of initiated this. So this was in end of, I believe, 2012 or beginning of 2013, actually, when I had found out. And then from there, they basically had started at that time. And then my year was the first class where there were the DACA students. There were seven of us in that class. And then each year sort of progressed. There was, I believe, a lot more in the following class. And so, yeah, so each year there, there have been DACA students, though, accepted into their medical school class. So. Yeah. yeah, I think I read something about like one third of the nation's DACA medical students attending here at Loyola or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. as of 2008, it is one third. Um, before then, it was actually one half. Really? And that just goes to show you how policy by medical schools can make a huge difference in terms of not just the undocumented, but any disadvantaged student. Yeah, the other schools following suit is what you mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's very interesting. It's something that's a little bit of like a like a niche culture here at Loyola. I didn't necessarily know about it when I applied. Mm-hmm. One of the things that attracted me to school was the mission values they had. You know, all of like the global health programs and like that. Those are things that I'm interested in because I wasn't you know a DACA status student. I didn't think very much about applying to a school that accepted DACA students. But when I got here, I was like, oh wow, that just makes so much sense. It was really interesting when we showed up. It was kind of weird to be in the national spotlight a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because we're not really known for very many things, but that is one of the things that we're known for. <laughs> yeah. I guess I, I want to touch on to a little bit like the opposition that sometimes people have towards, you know, DACA. There's, you know, there's, there's people out there who might say things like, for example, why can't they just apply for citizenship? Could you guys maybe explain why you couldn't just apply for citizenship right now? Sure. So in my case... Well, for starters, you have to say that the immigration system in the U.S., it's very complicated to the extent that there's very few avenues to adjust your status. For example, in an ideal setting, you would have entered the country through legal means like a visa, and you should have someone in the country that can sponsor you through your application. Uh, In that case, those two conditions rule out so many people. But even then, 
it takes a very long time to finish the process. In my case, I entered the country through a visa and then I was sponsored by my uncle in 1997. Initially, they told us that I had to wait 12 years, but that kept getting extended until it turned out to be close to 20. But at that point, I had gotten so old that I was not considered a minor anymore. And so I was taken out of the application and told to start the process over. And as of now, even though I waited 20 years, I have to wait until someone else that can sponsor me, such as my younger brother, becomes 21 years old, and then I can start the process again. So mm. it would be another 10 or 20 year wait. Yeah. And right now, that's the only option I have, even though I'm in an MD-PhD program. Yeah. It seems like what you're saying, essentially, is that when you are already here and your life is here in the United States, the prospect of applying for your citizenship by like, you know, like you said, applying for a visa or being like out, being outside of the country and applying, it doesn't really work because this is kind of like where your life is. You grew up here. And that's kind of the point of DACA, I think, is that this is these people's homes. You can't ask someone to leave their home to apply to come back to their home. And there's no guarantee that you'd be able to come back. You know, it's, it's also risky just leaving the country. Like in my case, our petition for asylum was eventually denied and, you know, my family actually had no idea because all of the letters were actually going to my father's former address, but he had left the country by that time. And so my brother, me, my mom, we actually didn't know. We thought that our petition was in process because we were still going for fingerprints and they were sending us other sorts of letters for fingerprints. But the rejection actually came many, many years later. And so at that point, we were just sort of stuck in limbo because, okay, we found out that now we're completely undocumented. And so, you know, we're just sort of stuck. We talked to some of the best immigration attorneys, and they pretty much said that the only option for all three of you is to, when the time is right, marry an American citizen. So to adjust your status. So yeah, how the system is set up, it it incentivizes you not to leave once you enter the country because if you have stayed here for a few years, you're penalized in that you cannot return to the country within a decade. So that creates a very difficult situation where you come in, especially as a child, you have no idea what's going on. And by the time that you have legal counsel, it's too late to be able to leave or try to adjust your status otherwise. And even if that were still possible, the avenues to adjust your status are very limited. And like Ima said, eventually it comes down to marrying someone, which honestly, personally, I don't think it's a realistic option for everyone. I feel like I need to put forward another one of the common arguments against accepting DACA students in the medical school, which is why don't they just go to school in their home country? And I think that the argument to respond to that is kind of obvious, but people do make that argument. How would you guys respond to someone who said, oh, why don't you just go to, to medical school in your own country? For me, it doesn't make sense to do that because I've gotten all my education here and this is my home. I would like to pursue my education here. And it's in the end, I'm trying to work towards helping the people here. And eventually everyone has long-term goals where they, they want to help people all around the world. But in terms of what my life goals are, and I'm sure 
thousands and thousands of other unfortunate students who are in, you know, the position of just having DACA or are undocumented, they're not thinking that, you know, because I, I also know that there are some rumors where, well, they're going to obtain the education here and then possibly go back to their country and their country is going to benefit from, from the education that they obtained here. And that's not the case. We would like to work here and help the people here. So, you know, to me, that argument doesn't really make much sense. And also, again, it's just that there's a lot of limitations. If, if we were to leave, uh, we wouldn't be able to come back here. And this is our home. Right. Yeah. Even going beyond the idea that this is our home, just the logistics don't make sense. Like we said before, if you leave, you can't come back for 10 years. And outside of that, we've optimized our education for the U.S. medical school system. I have no idea how the medical system works in Mexico. And from what I've heard, it's a process that starts at a young age. So if I had gone even after college, I would not be an ideal candidate to be selected to go to medical school there. So it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Logistically, it doesn't make sense to leave your home and go to another country to pursue education. I do think that's one of the interesting things that I think a lot of people have a misconception about. When you hear about the idea of DACA, it's like the automatic buzzword sometimes is amnesty. People don't realize that DACA, in a way, is allowing people to do a lot of the things they like. You might stereotypically hear people complain about, like, oh, they, you know, people who are immigrants don't pay taxes, or people who are immigrants don't get jobs. And, like, this is exactly what it allows you to do is, you know, get education, pay taxes, get a job, and especially a job that has benefits. I'm really thankful you guys came here and to talk about it. Are there any other lasting thoughts that you want to leave with our audience? Well, I want to expand on what you said about people that think of DACA as being amnesty. And in reality, DACA is so far from anything that would be considered amnesty. For starters, it does not provide a legal status. It has to be renewed uh, continually. But even beyond that, if we're working with DACA, we have to be paying taxes and we receive no federal benefits. We don't have access to health care. We can't apply for financial aid. And on top of all of that, we have to report on a continuous basis all of our personal information to the federal government, thus putting our entire lives on the government's hand to do whatever they want with it. It's crazy to think about that people would consider DACA being like that when it's not. Right. There was an Amnesty Act. I believe it was passed in the late 1980s. And that actually people, I believe, paid a fee. Um, and then they were able to adjust their status, uh, everyone that was undocumented here. So this is nothing like that. Um, this is just, you know, a temporary sort of being able to work or complete your education. And, you know, if what if there are setbacks with obtaining DACA or, you know, re renewing your work permit? It's just that your life is, it just seems very uncertain every couple of years. So I think that this is far from amnesty. Uh, I definitely agree with that. Sure. I mean, we kind of touched on this earlier, but what are you guys looking forward to in the future? We all know that DACA was repealed, but at the same time, you can renew your status still. What kind of things are you guys looking forward to in the future? Well, I would hope for a similar sort of amnesty act to occur, you know, at this point. How realistic is it? I'm not exactly sure. Um, you know, but it's important to be hopeful and optimistic that things will turn around at some point. But I think that it's it's really important to have something like that, um, and not only for the younger immigrants that are here, but for for everybody um, that is suffering through this. So I think that you know I'm I'm hopeful for something along that those lines. 
in my case, I think it goes back to the idea that the reason we're here is not so much due to a single act of legislation, but rather it's the aggregation of policies at in so many different levels. For example, I was able to attend college because my state gave me access to financial aid and in-state tuition. We were able to go to medical school because individual medical programs decided that they would take DACA students. And I'm very excited about the idea that so much has been able to change in our lives through the hard work of individuals, rather than putting all of our entire faith into a single body of government. That's a great thought. And you guys have very busy lives, uh, especially you, Ama, you're in your intern year. <laughs> and I'm sure that's, you know, one of the busiest parts of your entire life that you'll ever experience. And <laughs> so sorry, I know you're doing, you know, great things up in the lab right now. I guess just thanks for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We're very grateful that Ima and Cesar have agreed to come onto the podcast. Having DACA students at Loyola University has been a super valuable asset to our community, and they bring a unique perspective. Now, we know that immigration policy can be a controversial subject, but regardless of your views on the matter, we thought that this story was important to hear because many of your future colleagues and patients might come from this background. Hopefully, this conversation has helped to increase your understanding of the challenges faced by undocumented immigrants, including your fellow physicians. If you're a physician, medical student, or you work in the medical education field in any capacity, we would love to hear from you. We're always looking for new episode ideas and collaborators. Go to medicuspodcast.com to get in touch. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have questions, comments, or episode suggestions, you can submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.